For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Being on the left no longer means caring about class. Don't tell me you're the proletariat. Like if you sit behind a desk and you make $100,000 a year, you're part of the elites, you're in the top 20%. Really what it comes down to is like, you shouldn't speak up on behalf of the working class because you agree with their opinions or you like their opinions. You should speak up on behalf of the working class because a democracy requires sharing power. And if you don't have a working class that has access to a middle-class life, All of the political power is going to get funneled to the top and to the elites. And unfortunately, that's how the leftist elites like it. Hello, welcome back to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Batya Ungar-Sargon. Batya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me back. Um, It was such a pleasure talking to you. It really stood out in my mind as just one of the best conversations I had around my book. And I've been following you ever since on Instagram because you are not on Twitter. Well, you know, you mentioned there that the last time you were on the show, you were talking about your book, your brilliant book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. I know you're working on a new book now about the American dream and the working class. And maybe we can get a sneak preview of some of the themes during this discussion. Um, But I did want to kick off by asking you about a, a pretty broad question, I guess, about the state of American politics. Because as I was preparing for this podcast, I was thinking to myself, something a bit odd has happened in the UK where I am and in Europe, where when Trump was in power, all we talked about was American politics. We knew everything about the Trump administration. We knew who his press secretary was, who was advising him. We knew all about Steve Bannon. I mean, the European media was as obsessed with Trump as the American media was, partly because they shared the American media's view that Trump was the worst thing that ever happened. This was Nazism 2.0. He was going to destroy the Western world. So there was this constant drip, drip of information about the United States. Now, we still are dominated here in Europe by the the culture war of the United States and by identity politics. And I do want to ask you about those things. But we are not talking about Washington politics as much as we used to. Mm. We're not talking about the Biden administration nearly as much as we used to talk about the Trump administration. So I did want to just kick off by asking you a broad question about how politics is going in America. You know, Biden's been in power now a few years He did better than expected in the midterms last year. The Republican wave didn't actually materialize. Even the discovery of secret documents in his garage in in Delaware and his think tank building in Washington, D.C. doesn't seem to have made that many ripples over here, certainly not in comparison with the discovery of documents in Trump's mansion in Florida. So from, from a distance, it looks like American politics has calmed down and got onto an even keel. Is that how it feels to you over there? Or do you think under the surface, lots of stuff is going on? I think we're in the midst of a kind of like normie revival. Um, <laughs> and the reason that's happening is because, and, and this really, I think, did start under the Trump administration, but it was not very, you couldn't see it. But um, 
I think that the right, um, you know, it, it used to be in American politics that, you know, at least starting with Clinton, um, there was this kind of handshake agreement on economic policy where both left and right were sort of in the, you know, very co- deeply committed to the neoliberal order. Um, and basically, you know, the abandonment of the working class, um, you know, going all in on the knowledge industry, you know, they'll learn how to code, they'll become part of the knowledge industry. Of course, they didn't and um, didn't want to and, you know, um, were not didn't get that kind of investment. So you had, you know, this kind of handshake agreement on on economic policy. There was not much that distinguished Democrats from Republicans. The thing where the thing where they were sort of different was on social policy. Um, where you had uh, the Democrats waging, I think, you know, important battles on behalf of dignity for everybody, whether it was gay Americans, whether it was black Americans, um, you know, taking up the mantle of the civil rights movement. Um, And what amazingly what's happened is, (laughs) is that the right has uh, pretty much folded. uh, The left totally won all of those culture wars. Um, gay marriage, the majority of Republicans support it. Uh, you know, f- police brutality, the majority of Republicans want to see police reform. They're, they don't want to see any more mass incarceration. Um, you know, in all of these really important battles, the left won the culture wars. But the, from an economic standpoint, they did not revert to any kind of sort of what they used to have as their kind of like the labor wing, which was the base of the Democratic Party, the working class. They sort of have stayed in really the meritocratic fantasy of the neoliberal order. But what you really saw on the right, and the, the, this has been very misunderstood here as well in America, the, the MAGA right was not a social movement. It was an economic populist movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was it was the coupling of a kind of social conservatism, yes, but one that is consistent with dignity for gay Americans, one that is consistent with the desire to see, you know, the family thrive in Black America to help elevate those communities, right? But it was really Trump's real yen was for economic populism, trade war with China, limiting immigration, tariffs, right? Um, Getting rid of NAFTA. (laughs) Um, NAFTA being the number one, you know, a community being destroyed by NAFTA being the number one predictor for whether Trump would win that county. And of course, the number one predictor for whether that county, how many deaths of despair, fentanyl, alcoholism, suicide that county has. So what you have now is a kind of handshake agreement that every American should be treated with dignity on the social side of things. But one side has picked up the mantle of economic populism and it's the right. Um, And I think that um, the more that becomes clear that the kind of normie voter who is, you know, socially more or less moderate conservative thinks, you know, there's a difference between men and women, thinks children should not be taught about sexuality by their teachers, you know, thinks the family is really important, you know, and thinks that having a job with dignity is an incredibly important thing for every human, for every American, and something the government should be involved in ensuring, right? So no more free market nonsense. No, the government should be creating policy that that uh, bolsters working class jobs. That normie voter is increasingly somebody who has a lot of purchase in the Republican Party. But that is that those views are not conservative, right? Those views are just working class, middle class, normal. And so I think that that Whoever, it's always been a race to that 
to that person, right? Socially conservative, economically populist. Trump really spoke for those people, but he had this problem, which was that in order to take on both sides, he had to have a real personality problem. (laughs) And I think that's become increasingly bothersome to his voters, especially as somebody like DeSantis has emerged. So I think we're sort of we're sort of right before the moment in which it becomes clear that that's who the median American voter is and that they actually do have a champion, perhaps, in some of the people who are carrying the MAGA mantle. Um, You know, you're not really allowed to talk this way because you're not supposed to say positive things about the MAGA movement. But the idea of America first, the idea that the most important things for a president to stand for are, you know, controlling the border, securing the border and ending our investment in foreign wars. I mean, those were the two things Trump promised, two things he pretty much more or less delivered on that. That's the formula. I mean, it had nothing to do with his mean tweets. It had nothing to do with his penchant for trolling and for saying disgusting things. It was about those two things. And I think so. I think that there's we're in this moment of reckoning right now where that's becoming clearer and clearer. At least I'm doing my best to make it (laughs) clearer and clearer. So I think that that and that is a very subtle thing to be happening. So, I mean, of course, as soon as DeSantis announces, the media is going to go crazy and try to paint him. and, And it's so funny because like when it was Trump, they said, oh, it's not about the policy. It's about his personality, breaking the norms, blah, blah, blah. Now with DeSantis, they're going to have to reverse that, right? No, it's yeah. the policy. He's worse than Trump, blah, yeah. blah, blah. So, you know, but I think we're sort of in the calm before the storm. <laughs> I think that's that, that's a really useful overview of where American politics is at and, and actually not the kind of overview one would get in the media over here. And I think what's interesting about what you're saying, and, and you've been writing about these issues for a while now as well, um, is that I think I have a feeling at the moment that the elites in the US and, and in Europe too, they're kind of kidding themselves mm. if they think things are getting back to normal. So the big story about Biden and also Kamala Harris, of course, is that it was the adults back in the room. They were normal. They were sensible. They were intelligent. They were a bit more managerial. They were not wild and crazy like Trump and they were going to get things back to normality. We've had a similar discussion here in the UK now that Rishi Sunak, who is a pretty stiff, technocratic politician, has taken over from Boris Johnson, who was seen as a bit too unpredictable, a bit too wired, a bit too pro-Brexit, you know, those things that made the, the, the woke media uncomfortable. And there are similar discussions in Europe about whether even after the massive wave of Brexit in 2016, when the United Kingdom, the fifth largest economy in the world, an incredibly important part of Europe, withdrew from the European Union, which was a really major historical rupture in how Europe had been organised in the post-war period and especially in the post-1970s period. And I think there is this kind of delusion among sections of the elite that things are getting back to normal. But that's not really the case. As you've just outlined there, there is still an economic populist sentiment in large parts of America. There is also the same kind of thing in Europe too. But also one thing that you've written about, especially in relation to the midterms last year, which you also refer to as the normie election, the kind of revenge of the normies against the the, the hyper-divided elites and, and the kind of the elites always at each other's throats. One thing that you wrote in relation to that is that Trump might be going. Trump's candidates didn't do particularly well in the midterms. And Trump was shown up as maybe being yesterday's man. But Trumpism, by which we might broadly mean the desire of ordinary working Americans for all the things you just talked about, dignity in their lives, good jobs, fair economic deal, 
that still exists, doesn't it? And it's expressed in figures like Ron DeSantis in Florida. And you get the feeling that lots of Americans are looking for another person or another outlet through which they can express those ideas. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it turned out that the the adults being back in the room was exactly what you would have predicted, an open border and another forever war, right? I know you and I don't agree about, about Ukraine and funding for Ukraine probably, but uh, <laughs> but I mean, this was exactly what Trump's voters were running away from. So in a way, it wasn't really surprising. It was like, oh yeah, of course we know this, right? The elites love, you know, low wage slave labor being imported by the cartels, you know, to work service industry jobs. And then, you know, they rather have, you know, cheap labor than, than have to pay more for it, right? And they, of course, always need some sort of foreign entanglement to be to be engaged in. So um, it, it turned out to be exactly what everybody thought. Um, I think Ron DeSantis um, is interesting because you know he. So when he he won by double digit, he won by about twenty points in Florida, um, which is really astonishing. I mean, I, you know, I don't know how what that would be like in the UK, but that's a lot in America. And you know, people were saying well, Florida is now solidly red. All of these people who turned out for him were conservatives who had been living in California and New York and moved to Florida. But I don't think that's true. I think he won the votes of a lot of Democrats. I think I know a lot of Democrats who would happily vote for him. And, you know, the woke media tries to cast him as this extremist. But, you know, the things he's pushing for are so commonsensical. Um, and the things that make the media the angriest are the most commonsensical, you know, <laughs> so they, they have to work overtime to to portray mm-hmm. him as an extreme. I'll just give one example. So he he wrote this legislation called um, Parental Rights in Education, the Parental Rights in Education bill, um, you know, uh, a conservative um, commentator um, laughingly dubbed it the not until they're eight bill, because you can't teach kids about sexuality and gender until they're eight years old. That 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 was that was the, the bill. So, of course, there were people on the far right who were like, you know, basically this doesn't go far enough. But the idea was, you know, you cannot talk to my kindergartner about your sexuality and your gender. That's my job. Um, totally commonsensical a bill that had, you know, between 60 and 75 percent support from liberals. So so from Democrats mm. supported it. Um, I know a lot of gay people who supported it. Right. It was just a commonsensical view that for very, very small children, it's their their parents' right to, to, to instruct them about these sensitive issues. Because this was such a normie view, because this is the kind of view that, you know, so many people would would see see as a positive development. The media had to really work overtime to lie about the bill. And so they called it the don't say gay bill. And the interesting thing there was that um, the bill was really targeted more at a new trans agenda that seeks to, um, I guess, inculcate in children the option of seeing themselves as the other gender, right? That seeks, I don't want to use the word grooming. I I do find that word a little bit offensive because it it is too close to me to sort of mishing together, you know, being gay with pedophilia, which has like a very ugly history. But, you know, it does seem to me to be like this idea that children must be exposed to the idea that, you know, they, they get to choose their gender at a very early age. That, and- the, the the thing is, is that the, the difference between the gay agenda and the trans agenda is very important um, because, again, most Americans deeply committed to dignity for, for all Americans, to civil rights for gay Americans, equal protections before the law. In fact, 64 percent of Americans support 
uh, protections against discrimination for trans Americans. Americans are extremely tolerant and extremely into protecting the private sphere and discrimination in the public sphere. But when you ask them, should trans athletes be allowed to compete on girls' teams, support craters from 64% to below 20%? Because that is an extremist view. I mean, that is the extremist view, right? So the media doesn't want to admit that. And so what they do is they try to act like if you say, no, you can't talk to my kindergartner about who you have sex with, that you then therefore don't support equal protections for gay or trans Americans. And of course, that's not true. It's just a way of painting their opposition as bigots, which is what they always do to distract from the, the class divide. Absolutely. And I've I've followed that discussion about um, DeSantis's so-called don't say gay bill. And I was as alarmed by some of the media commentary as you have been, and, and you've outlined it really well there, where it was so obvious to those of us who still have a reasoned perspective on these things that the extremist position was in sections of the media where there was genuinely the argument either implicitly made or explicitly made that kids as young as five or six or seven could be told about 100 genders or gender fluidity or the idea that they could potentially pick their gender and change their name. And those kinds of ideas, which we're seeing coming into schools here in the UK as well, and there have been reports in the UK of um, boys using girls' changing spaces and uh, going into uh, girls' sports. Uh, we've had reports here of girls at schools being provided with breast-binding materials because they don't like the fact that they're going through puberty and they're wondering if they might actually be boys rather than girls. All of these things which the vast majority of people consider to be destructive and dangerous for young people, and yet there are sections of the media who celebrate that and demonise the critics of it as the bigots and the transphobes. And just on that, I did want to ask you what you think that tells us about the media at the moment and the woke media. Now, you've written a book on this and and we talked about it last time, and I think your book was an incredibly important intervention into the discussion about the, the modern media. And it does suggest, as you've touched upon many times, that there is just this colossal divide, isn't there, between huge sections of the public who have very rational, reasoned, fair views. As you say, the majority of people are in favour of civil rights for gay people. They're in favour of trans people being able to live freely without discrimination or harassment. They're in favour of racial equality. They're in favour of interracial marriage in far greater numbers than they have ever were in the past. So there's been a lot of progress on those issues. Uh, But in the media, there is this extremist cultural agenda, constantly pushing new and eccentric ideas that the public rejects. So is, is one of the important divides in contemporary American society between the normie public, as we might refer to them, and the elite media. And and what do you think that divide really speaks to? Definitely. Well, first of all, I have to say, I mean, you're much braver than I am because I think in the UK, it, you guys, be, the, the, we have this two-party system. So you're always, even if you, you have a view that sort of flies in the face of the leftist media, you know, there's still a, another side. It's much smaller, but it speaks for a much bigger audience. And so you kind of have, you know, the, you're, you're going to get labeled a bigot on the left, 
But you, there, there is another side that's going to say, hey, wait a minute. We had the same thing with the truckers convoy, you know, like it, it, in Canada, you there was no real mainstream media defending them. Everybody was calling. You had to turn on Fox News to get like an accurate portrayal of what these people want. So my hat is off to you because you, you I mean, you're a real dissident, you know, when it comes to, you know, the intellectual sphere that you're that you're making your intervention into. Um I think, you know, it's 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 definitely that the media is extremely elite. It's extremely separated from the concerns of everyday Americans. I think now you're seeing, you know, when I wrote the book, the main thing was like the racial question. Um, but I think now <laughs> they've moved on to the trans issue, I think, because Black Americans are sick of being used in that way. And they speak up about a lot of issues that are near and dear to the hearts of woke liberals and woke progressives. For example, immigration. Black Americans have paid a huge price for our essentially open border for the last 40 years. I mean, um, you know, over and over, businesses would much rather hire illegal immigrants than hire Black Americans. And so they've literally paid for up to 40, 50 percent of wages just sacrificed on the altar of progressive pieties about importing people from failed socialist states. So, I mean, they're very angry about that. You know, they're not on board with the trans agenda. There's just a huge divide between where, you know, two thirds of Black Americans call themselves moderate or conservative. So the, when you turn on CNN and you see a woke black person pontificating about defunding the police, they're speaking for a tiny portion of the community who they're purporting to represent. Those divides are becoming very clear. I mean, just the breakdown of the intersectional coalition, um, everything that happens now in the in this progressive woke mainstream space it's, it, it's just become very clear how divided it is from Americans who don't have a college degree. Now, the problem in America is that a lot of people have a college degree, a lot, a third of the of the country. And when you go to college, especially if you're a woman, you basically come out identifying as far left. And so there's it's sort of this breeding ground for wokeness that that creates this kind of very diffuse elite. I mean, not everybody in the elite is rich, right? I mean, some people are doing sort of the drudgery work of the elites, right? Some people are working at Starbucks with their college degree. But you have this view that is a very elite view, but it's become diffuse because so many people go to college and, and get that, you know, critical race theory education. Um, you know, you can't pass, you can't get a college degree without taking a composition class. That composition class is taught by an English PhD. That English PhD had to take a critical theory class in order to get his or her PhD. So meaning you have to go through it. And of course, if you're a woman, a lot of minorities, like if somebody starts telling you, oh, everything that bad that happened to you, you, you know, it's not your fault, you're a victim, blah, blah, blah. It sticks for a lot of people. So they sort of come out of college and then bring this into their their industries. So, you know, the, the the class divide is very, very real. Yeah, we have a similar dynamic in the UK where um, educational status is increasingly underpins a lots of the political and cultural divides. At generational too, you know, young people have particular views. And as you go higher up the age scale, people are more skeptical of the extreme nature of the trans agenda, or they're more skeptical of technocracy, they're more skeptical of globalism. Um, and I think it's really interesting because during the Brexit period here, which is ongoing, by the way, Brexit remains one of the great unresolved political earthquakes of modern times. Um, a lot of people made pointed out that the educational divide was quite central to that. So if you had a college degree or university degree, you were far more likely to have voted 
remain. It, you know, it was something like 90% of people in universities, academics were pro-Remain, pro-staying in the European Union. Whereas when you go to people who are working class and whose highest level of education was uh, secondary school or high school, as you guys call it, who people who left school at the age of 16 or 18, they were far more likely to vote Brexit, far, far more likely to vote for leaving the European Union. So I find those divides incredibly interesting. And of course, some commentators put it down to the fact, well, if you've been to university, you're cleverer and therefore you have better political views. When of course, in some ways, the opposite is the case. If you've been to universities these days, you've been through a conveyor belt of socialization in, in some instances where you're given the supposedly correct views on certain issues. And then, as you say, people take that into the professional sphere, particularly into the media, particularly into politics. And it comes to be dominated by a pretty eccentric way of thinking. Uh, but I, I did want to ask you about class, which you've just mentioned there, and the class divide. And one of the things I admire most about your writing is that you talk about the class divide, which I think is a really important thing to talk about. I want to kick off by asking you about how class questions have been reimagined by sections of the supposed left or sections of the progressive elite. Because one of the things you've commented on, and I've noticed the same thing in, in the European context, is the way in which economic questions, the issues of economic populism, economic nationalism are increasingly being interpreted as racist dog whistles. So if you are the kind of person in the UK or the US who says, listen, we need to talk to the working classes, we need to get their interests onto the agenda, that is often presented by elite journalists and others as racist as an attempt to put the white working classes first and to demean all the other minorities. Isn't it pretty extraordinary when questions of class and economic equality and economic fairness are reinterpreted in, in, in such a derogatory way? Yeah, it's so funny because when my book came out, um, I, I consider myself a left-wing populist, um, although increasingly I, I, I see the value of more conservative so, I mean, the family, for example, is it just it's just a, undoubtedly a crucial for upward mobility. So if you care about class, you can't care about class and not care about marriage. So if you, you know, so what is what sense does it make to say, oh, I'm a leftist, but, you know, I think, you know, the nuclear family is extremely important. I mean, I think I think I, I don't think it matters if the nuclear family is made up of a man and a woman. But, you know, it's um, but but I so I would come out and say I'm a left wing populist. This book is a leftist critique of the liberal media from the left, from a class point of view. And routinely people would say, oh, that's that's you're a conservative. Those are conservative talking points. And I always kind of laughed because, first of all, I don't think the word conservative is an insult. Like it's I, that's not how I identify, but I, mm -hmm. I'm not insulted. It's not like saying that I'm that you're fat. You know what I mean? It's like but they expect you to act <laughs> like somebody just, you know, called you fat. Yeah. Um, but the other point I, 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 I always like would chuckle to myself and say, so is it your position that to care about class is now a right wing proposition and you think you're going to come away from saying that the winner? I mean, you just seeded the fight, right? You've just essentially admitted that being on the left no longer means caring about class. And it comes out in such funny ways, like um, when Elon Musk fired a whole bunch of tech workers, right? 
Uh, you know, we know now that those people were totally superfluous to the operation of Twitter because it's been completely operational. I mean, there's been no, everybody was predicting it's going to fall apart. No, it turned out 75% of people who work there did an hour or two of work a day and then spent the rest of the time drinking matcha and going to their, they had all these, you know, their videos circulating. Everyone should look them up of what a day in the life of a Twitter employee looks like. You know, the average pay was $160,000 a year. And um, these people would show up to work and they would have these like really funny jobs that didn't seem to entail much work at all. Um, And then when they were fired, the left took this on like this was some great like labor (laughs) catastrophe. It's like these are the real working class. Don't you know, people making 160K a year to, to drink matcha, iced matchas. Right. And I ran a piece by a working class guy, railroad worker. And he was sort of like, you guys don't understand like what it means. Oh, the other thing was these people worked were working from home. So a lot of them, you know, Musk demanded they come in at least once a month. And they were like, the horror, the <laughs> horror, you know, we will not. And so he fired them. And um, so so this railroad worker, Charles Stallworth, he writes these great pieces for me. And he was like, you just, I, I can't even explain to you what it feels like. As me, somebody who has to travel thousands of miles to get to work, I I see my kids, you know, only on the weekends, you know, for you to sit there and throw this tantrum over being asked to come in once a month. And oh my God, did the leftist media go, like they just could, you can't say these things to them because the real proletariat it don't you know is the like you know the content manager at at Twitter or whatnot. So they've they've sort of and you see this a lot in the media as well. They take their unionizing very seriously at these jobs where the average pay is a hundred thousand dollars a year, like these knowledge industry jobs. And um, it, it it just it's really funny how there, there's a lot of stolen valor from unions. I'm not saying they shouldn't be unionized. I, I think unions are great. I mean, they've been really co-opted by the Democratic Party in a very unfortunate way in America. But I'm all for collective bargaining at whatever level. But don't tell me you're the proletariat. Like if you sit behind a desk and you make $100,000 a year, you're part of the elites, you're in the top 20%. And and you've taken a, a bigger share of the economic pie. And as a result, believe you deserve a bigger share of the political pie. And I think that's that's really what it comes down to is like, you shouldn't speak up on behalf of the working class because you agree with their opinions or you like their opinions. You should speak up on behalf of the working class because a democracy requires sharing power and shared power throughout history has been tied to shared economic success, upward mobility, middle class, the middle class. And if you don't have a working class that has access to a middle class life, all of the political power is going to get funneled to the top and to the elites. And unfortunately, that's how the leftist elites like it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we should say for any listeners who don't know, when you when you talk about pieces you've commissioned, that's for Newsweek, where you are deputy opinion editor. Yes. Uh, people should read all the good stuff there, that, uh, much of which is is down to Batcher and the great stuff that she's commissioning. And of course, you're writing your own writing at Newsweek on Spite, in Unheard and other places. People should, of course, look all of that up as well. I think um, I think this idea of the who's the proletariat, who is the working class, is really interesting because there have been explicit efforts here in the UK to redefine the working class out of existence over the past few years, and it's a very similar dynamic to the one that you've just described, where there are people in elite industries, particularly in the media, or well-educated young people from pretty well-off backgrounds who are whose rent is very high and who aren't getting paid particularly well, and they are problems, but they reimagine themselves as the true working class, even though they work as graphic designers 
in a nice office in central London, and they conceive of the traditional working class, the people in the north of England or in the Midlands or on the outskirts of London who might happen to own their own homes, for example, because they bought them over the past 30 or 40 years, which includes my parents who uh, had working class jobs and managed to buy their own home under Margaret Thatcher's government um, because she brought in a policy where you could buy, if you lived in a council house, you could then buy it. It was very controversial. Uh, so they, they've they reimagined the old working classes as actually the property owning elites because these people, even though they worked down the coal mines or they worked as bus drivers or whatever else they did, they managed to buy their homes. So they're now, those people are now the property owning elites. Whereas these people who went to Oxford University and work in a fancy profession in London, they're the new proletariat. And they really do say things like this. It is quite extraordinary. It brings to mind Bertolt Brecht when he joked about communist governments dissolving the people and electing another one because they were so disappointed with the public. It's a similar dynamic in class today. Dissolve the working class because it's a pain in the neck and it's got all the wrong views and create a new one. And that that is happening. But it, it, just on, on that issue of class, as you say, it's not about uh, whether you share all working class people's opinions. It's, it's, it's the broader question of recognizing that class questions and questions of, as you said earlier on, the right to have a good job that pays well and gives you some dignity in your life. These are just incredibly important social matters, aren't they? And they really deserve to be slightly higher up the, politi- the, the progressive agenda than the question of whether a man can use a lady's bathroom. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they've given up on the American dream is really what happened is, you know, mm. as this kind of anti-American, um, anti-imperialist view from the university trickled out through these kind of these, you know, college grads, um, they really don't believe in the American dream because they don't think that America is worth believing in. And meanwhile, like all working class black families want is to own their own home in a nice neighborhood where their kid can walk to school without getting shot at. You know, maybe they can go to college if they choose to, you know, they can retire with dignity. I mean, that's that's what immigrants come to this country for that dream. And actually, immigrants in many cases have a better shot at achieving it than black Americans for a host of of, of issues, cultural, social, whatever issues that we should all be paying attention to, but neither side wants to wants to deal with because it's not in their economic interests. I mean, or in their ideological interests. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's you know what could be more important than having a stable middle class, and yet the elites on the left have by and large given up on it. Um, you know, because like you said, they live in cities. You know, they don't have this um, this sense of like community of place this sense of, you know, upward mobility for their kids, because that's guaranteed. You know, they preach on marriage, for example, they preach, you know, oh, like at the, the end of the nuclear family, marriage is not important, gender is not important. Then meanwhile, they all get married and then reap the economic benefits of being married, which are enormous. I mean, it's it's very hard to be poor if you get married before you have kids or if you come from a married couple. And it's very hard to, to, to achieve upward mobility if you come from a broken home or if you have kids before you get married. I don't want these to be the facts, but these are the facts. And if we can't admit this, how are we ever going to solve it? It's like it's like crime. You know, the li- liberals won't talk about it because 70 percent of the victims are, of crime are black, which means, you know, 67 percent of the perpetrators are black. They think it's racist to talk about it, but it is racist not to talk about it mm-hmm. because you are essentially sentencing people to live in a way that you would never 
dream of allowing your own child to live. It's disgusting. But because they live so separate from these problems, because American cities are so segregated by class, not even by race so much as by class, they don't have to deal with it. They don't have to see it. And they can live in this bubble that incidentally also is in their economic interests, right? Because that class divide is based on the knowledge industry economy that Clinton started, that Obama leaned into, that really funnels such a huge part of the pie towards people in the top 20% and then drops everybody else out to the bottom. Yeah, I think that, that that's something that I've been thinking a lot about over the past few years because I I had a tendency for a while to say the problem with the woke left, the problem with the so-called progressive elites is that they don't care about class, they don't care about economic questions, they've kind of pushed those to one side. But in fact, in some ways, even if it's instinctively, rather than being driven by class consciousness, as we would traditionally have understood it, they actually do pursue their own class interests. They do pursue their own economic interests through the political and cultural agendas that they push. So there is at some level an awareness of class and uh, things that benefit their communities even if they have a high cost for working class communities, they tend to elevate those as, as being the most important political questions. And, and on, on that very question, you've just mentioned there the crime issue. You've written some great pieces on America's crime wave and, and more importantly, the fact that it is not racist or conservative or the politics of fear for ordinary voters to be worried about that stuff. I mean, there has been a tendency... I guess, among sections of the academic left to see crime concern as an expression only of fear. And there were actually crime panics in the past. These things have existed. They they are real. You know, there have been moral panics over certain forms of crime um, in the past. But at the moment, that sneering at ordinary Americans, and we see it against ordinary Brits here as well, who are concerned about skyrocketing knife crime in London, for example, or the growing number of shootings in parts of the US and and the possibility that winding down certain police services may have made the crime problem worse for certain communities. Why do you think there is such a determination on on the part of the woke media to to write that off as something that you shouldn't be concerned about, get a grip, stop being driven by right-wing fear? They're just not willing to take people's concerns seriously, are they? Yeah, I, I think there's a number of reasons. I mean, the first is it, it's, it embarrasses them that so much of the crime is committed by Black Americans. Um, mm. That's very hard to talk about. It's mm. not, I, I feel very aligned with that community. I feel, and it's very hard to talk about it. But when you talk to people from that community, they're talking about yeah. it and they're thinking about it. And you just have to overcome your embarrassment and advocate for people in the way that they need to be advocated for. So I think that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is that these are the the crime waves are happening by and large in liberal cities. So the left will say, well, but they're happening, you know, if you look at the statistics, the states with the highest level of violent crime are all red states, but that that crime is localized in cities in those states that have big black populations. Mm-hmm. So again, this is very hard to talk about if you care deeply about that community, but you have to, you can't just say, I'm embarrassed by this, so I'm not going to talk about it because I'm worried that that guy is going to call me a racist if I do. So, you know, that, that it's it's localized in liberal cities, meaning that they can't blame Republicans for it. So if you can't blame your political adversaries for something, it's very hard to say, um, 
oh, you know, what are we going to do about this? It's in our backyard. The third reason I think they won't talk about it is because crime was brought down by a series of policies that were deemed unconstitutional in New York City. Okay, so for example, stop and frisk. It was deemed unconstitutional because the vast majority of people stopped were black and Hispanic. 90% of people stopped were Black and Hispanic, and 70% of people stopped did not have guns on them. Now, if you talk to cops, if you talk to Black cops, you know, I have a very good friend who's an NYPD detective, and he'll tell you, you know, you can tell from behind by how somebody's walking, whether they have a gun on them or not. We know that 67% of murders are committed by young Black men. So, on the one hand, yeah, it was unconstitutional to racially profile these people, On the other hand, it brought down crime because it was having its intended effect. They would pull people in. They would not have guns because they knew that there was a likelihood that they would be stopped. So on the one hand, it had this horrible impact on young black men who were not carrying guns and not criminals. It was very demoralizing to subject them, sometimes innocent people, to to this profiling. On the other hand, it saved, it, it arguably saved thousands and thousands and thousands of black lives. I mean, what do you do with something like that? It's... On the right, people say this isn't a real conundrum. It is. It's a real conundrum. It's a difficult question to solve because, of course, so much of this is bound up in the history and in the structural racism and in redlining and so forth. History. Today, is that stuff still to blame? I don't know. I mean, isn't every person responsible for whether or not they pull a trigger? They are. Of course they are. So it's but it's challenging because the leftists who got rid of those policies did so, I think, out of real purity of heart. I mean, the, the leftists who wanted to try a decarceration plan in which they decriminalized shoplifting, that came from purity of heart. It didn't come from them wanting Walgreens to close down. It came from them wanting to see fewer Black men in prison. But unfortunately, we have not addressed the reason that this is happening. And so so I think that it's a combination. And then, of course, the class thing. Like, if you point out that they are benefiting from the class divide, they call you racist. And so this is clearly an issue of them being ensconced in their little safe neighborhoods where they don't have to worry about crime, Mm -hmm. where they can sit there getting high on their own virtue, on their Facebook posts about how, you know, we need to decriminalize everything and, you know, protecting themselves from the reality out there while also, you know, get you know, making themselves feel like they're the heroes of some sort of Manichaean drama, right? And everybody else is racist. And then, you know, asking actually Black working class people to bear the brunt and the burden of their virtue. I mean, I hear so many echoes in what you said about discussions we have here, particularly in London, where there's been a huge controversy. We call it stop and search. There's been a big controversy about the police's use of stop and search powers, which were being used disproportionately against black kids. But then at the same time in London, the knife crime problem and and much of the drug problem is at the forefront of that, really sadly, are black kids. They are the ones who are more likely to be stabbed to death. We've had a rising number of those kinds of attacks. And they're also more likely to be the perpetrators. And a lot of it is to do with drugs boundaries and who, who owns this patch and who owns that patch. And the unwillingness of the largely white yeah. liberal progressive media to talk about those issues because they will never be touched by them is extraordinary. Whereas I know people in parts of London who don't like to go out in the evening. They don't feel particularly safe. And if you want to live in a, if you think it's good to live in a racially diverse society, which I do, then we should talk about these things and we should talk about how life can be improved for all sections of society. Um, I I wanted, I really wanted to ask you, uh, just leaping forward a little bit about 
the green issue, mm. because you're one of a small number of voices, voices that I think are incredibly important, who is able to frame the discussion about green politics within the broader issues to do with class and the clash between the class divide, I guess, the divide between ordinary people who want good jobs and a dignified life and this new elite, which has other priorities. And one of their priorities is a green form of doom mongering. You published a really good piece by uh, Ralph Scholhammer, who was on this podcast just a couple of weeks ago, um, about, I, I think he used the phrase, the bored bourgeoisie yeah. who, who, who get a real sense of purpose and mission from this idea that they're saving the planet from instant eco-doom. We saw John Kerry making that kind of comment at Davos last week where he said something crazy, like, isn't it wonderful to be part of a select group of human beings who has the responsibility to save the earth? And he said it feels almost extraterrestrial, which I thought was actually a good way of putting it because <laughs> there is something quite alien and extraterrestrial about their their kind of self-delusion. But as part of that, we now have um, the eco-elites, these elites who, are, who, who believe that the world is coming to an end any minute now, we have a situation where they do expressly call for working class people to be deprived mm. of certain jobs. So in the US, you've had various fracking controversies. Here in the UK, the government has given the go ahead to a coal mine, which will be built, which will create hundreds of really well-paid, skilled jobs for working class people. And then lots of knock-on jobs as well in terms of um, industries that will rise up around uh, the coal mine. And green leftists, the progressive set, are actively agitating for that not to go ahead. They're agitating for people not to have those jobs. And of course, what we will do if they are successful, we'll carry on importing coal from South Africa or India or other countries where apparently it's fine for people to work in pretty bad conditions so long as we can get their coal. A very strange situation. So what do you think the ideology of environmentalism, as it currently stands, tells us about some of these issues that we've been talking about? Well, I can't do better than Ralph, although I do I do disagree with him about it being like a religion. <clears throat> as a religious person, it's, it's, right. it's, it just doesn't, that's not what religion feels like. It's the opposite. You're supposed to feel constantly mm. wanting. You're never supposed to judge anybody else. Like that thing that, that John Kerry said, you know, it's it's what religion sounds like to people who aren't religious, I think, which is, you know, we're part of a select yeah. group and we're going to save the world. It's like, it really doesn't <laughs> feel that way inside. But um, yeah, Ralph's piece was so brilliant. He, you know, he argued that, you know, the climate movement is not about the planet. It's about the boredom, boredom of the bourgeoisie was how he put it. Um, the, the thing that came to mind was uh, I was watching the Davos coverage, you know, and it was just so amazing because in any other era, the quote unquote left would have seen that as the sort of disgusting display of, um, you know, conspicuous consumption, elite vanity that it was. But instead, anyone who's progressive looked at that and said, oh, yeah, those are my values, the green, you know, environmentalism. These people represent me. Right. So in a way, it was it's genius in creating what, of course, the left always accuses the right of, which is creating a um, a value system that makes the difference between the billionaire class and just the educated elites fungible because they're all on the same side of this, 
you know, apocalyptic vision that the most important thing is the climate and we're all going to die if we don't solve this, right? I mean, it's, it's quite genius. I don't think anybody sat down and figured that out, but surely that thing where you get the top 20% to see their interests as aligned with, um, you know, these gazillionaires is, is, you know, that is what, that is greasing the wheels of that movement, right? You know, this, this child, Greta Thunberg, who shows up and lectures them and they, they love it. They love it. They give, lecture me more, Greta, you know, tell me how I'm bad. You know, this kind of like bizarre masochism that unites the yeah. super, super wealthy who are totally bored because they have nothing to fight for anymore. And then the top 20% who I think, you know, I mean, I, like, I'll tell you the thing I, I look at, I'll watch documentaries about Dr. King and I'll think, you know, I will never get to be as brave as the people who stood by him. You know what I mean? I, I will never be called on for such bravery because America has just progressed to a place where it, that kind of bravery for such uh, an obviously black and white good versus evil cause, that moment is gone. We don't, we're not, we will not be called upon for that kind of a thing. And I think a lot of people they're left wanting. And so they're looking for who is the next thing that I could say, like, oh, I'm being called upon. And so, you know, they look, you know, the trans movement, the, they, the, the environment, you know, poor mother nature who like needs you to stand up for her. And, you know, the truth is like <laughs> that kind of good versus evil doesn't exist anymore. We have what are healthy debates, you know, like about when a fetus becomes a life, like how many guns a person should have. Like if your democracy can't sustain debates about those kinds of issues, it's not a democracy. you know. So but they don't want yeah. they don't see it that way. I think they want all debate to be they want it to be over. And, and, and again, that comes back to economic interests. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the green ideology is so key to lots of these themes that that we're talking about and which you write about and which a few other people do as well. I, I guess we could call ourselves a select few human <laughs> beings if we wanted to be a bit John Kerry about it. Um, but I also agree with you that it is actually wrong to describe the climate change alarmist movement as a religion. Because, And I think the key difference is that religion has an element of transcendence. So mm. it is about doing good, living well, being nice to other people, being in, uh, uh, kind to other people. And there's an element of transcendence. There's a promise yeah. at the end of it, whether it might be the next life or whatever else it might be. Whereas what's always struck me about environmentalism is that it's incredibly, there's an animalistic element to it. Your only role in this world is to shrink your human footprint, uh, live as meekly as you can, even though the people telling us to live meekly don't live meekly themselves. Yeah. Um, make everything small, don't ask for too much, and there's no reward at the end. And you just think, what's the point of that? So it has none of those kind of redeeming features of religion at all, which I think is quite important to, for us to, to recognise. But just on the environmental ideology and the element of fear that is in it, I did want to ask you, just in relation to something you just said there, how much do you think the establishment believes this and how much do you think this is a performance. And I think in a sense that might be seen as kind of, you know, splitting hairs, but I do think it's quite important because part of me thinks that if it were simply a cynical thing on their part and they know that it gives them a sense of purpose and they know it gives them some clout in the world and they know that it defends their economic interests, which tend to lie in the new knowledge economies, the kind of post-industrial economy rather than in the what they would view as the dirty economy where lots of other people work. Um, that's all true. But another part of me worries that they actually 
do believe that the world is coming to an end, that it is the fault of modern society, that if only we didn't have that pesky industrial revolution 200 years ago, everything would be fine. And in that sense, it might express a really profound loss of faith on their part in the human project itself. And so how, how do you strike that balance between, on the one hand, are they playing a game because they benefit from it? Or do they believe this stuff? And does that tell us something about um, their political set, which is actually quite worrying? I think it's a really important question. I don't think it's splitting hairs. It's extremely important. And I think they definitely believe it. I I, I, I don't think you can look at AOC and not see somebody like deeply sincere. Mm. They really believe it. And um, I, I think that the way that they portray, they think of the economy is you know, very related to this, you know, they picture an economy in which, you know, the top 20% keeps making over $100,000 a year and lives in nice neighborhoods and nice cities. Um, all production is done in, in China. Um, all service industry jobs are performed by Venezuelans, by, you know, basically slave wage Venezuelans who are brought in by the cartels. And then everybody making under $100,000 a year who used to be the working class is on universal basic income. So it's sort of on welfare, on the dole being paid off not to work, essentially. I mean, that's I think that's the view that a lot of progressives consciously or unconsciously have of like their ideal of how the economy works. Um, and this, of course, fits right into it. You know, as Ralph says all the time, you can't have a middle class without, you know, cheap, affordable gas, without uh, access to energy. And they don't believe in that. They don't believe in, you know, cars. They don't believe in trucks. They don't believe in farming. They don't they don't believe in, you know, the jobs that we actually rely on to survive, like to live, to exist. Right. Um, uh, they they and I, I think you're right. There's like a. a I mean, they've given up on America. They've given up on the idea of the nation state. They've given up on mm -hmm. believing in, you know, they're, they're definitely not proud of America. They're ashamed of America. They do, And they really, really, really don't like conservatives, religious people, Republicans, people who voted for Trump. Like th those people to them are just anathema to the good life and the good world. And um, the, the green movement just fits so neatly into all of this, you know. Well, if all of the farming and all of the production is being done in China, you don't have to worry about it. You can just, you know, it's, well, that's our trading partner. It's on them. You know, we you're outsourcing sort of the dirty deeds that you actually do rely on to survive. And then basically, you know, sentencing the people who do those jobs to impoverishment. It's, it's so dark, but it's so hard to get them to, because they'll say, you know, well, you know, if you bring up the class divide, they'll say, well, there'll be no classes, you know, in 10 years if the planet's not here. It's kind of like a win all, you know, but, but yeah. I do, I do think they believe, I mean, it, I do think they believe it. I think it would be very hard to pull this off at this scale if they didn't. Um, you know, the thing that makes me think they they don't is the private jets. I mean, the the first thing you would think to do is ban the private jets, but it's, it's not even on like no one even dares bring that up, you know? So that I think that's kind of yeah. the the evidence to the other the other position. <laughs> yeah, it really has become a trump card in almost every yeah. discussion. So one of the points I often make when I get into arguments with um climate change activists is um look, people like us, people who consider ourselves progressive on the left or however else one might describe oneself, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, people like us would have been arguing for global economic equality. We, we would have been saying that people in the developing world deserve to have the same standard of living as we do, the same comforts, the same access to work, the same access to roads and hospitals and all the infrastructure that we take for granted. Fast forward to the 2020s and you have so-called progressives arguing that if people in the developing world get that stuff, I, as an individual, 
will be harmed by climate change. My quality of air will go down. My ability to breathe easily as I walk through my fancy park next to my apartment in London or New York will be made worse. So there's an incredible replacement of the politics of solidarity with the politics of narcissism and this real turnaround from desiring a greater economic uh, benefit for all of humankind towards this kind of incredibly insular view, which is that my community, me as an individual, we need to be protected from the consequences of other people possibly becoming as rich as we are. And I just find that so dispiriting and so and so selfish, to be frank about it. Um, but So, Batra, I just have a couple more questions I want to put to you. The first one is on um, the pyjama classes. I guess we've been talking about the pajama classes without using that brilliant. I was just going to say your your analysis of the green movement and my little protecting my little communities exactly what happened with the COVID yeah. lockdowns. There was never a moment where the elite said, "I refuse to rise so far above my fellow man who's literally delivering my food to my door. I want to be in the same." situation as him. Let's find an equitable way to get through this together. No, they said, we're going to lock down yeah. in our nice homes and you're going to service me. And then I'm going to tell you what to put in your body so that I can be comfortable going to you to get service. Yeah. It was so appalling. And yeah, <laughs> it was, it was extraordinary. And someone here in the UK said, um, very aptly that there wasn't actually a lockdown. What happened is that uh, the upper middle classes locked down. They worked from home. They made sourdough bread. <laughs> they were on Instagram stories all day long, whereas um, millions of other people carried on working. The example I always use is um, refuse collection. People who pick up the bins, empty your uh, one's trash. They didn't stop working. Yeah. And if they did stop working, I can assure you that the COVID lockdown would have ended very quickly <laughs> because society would have would have gone to to trash very, very fast. So yeah, half of society carried on working and they were serving the other half who kind of stayed in their little citadels of comfort, doing their work on their computers, engaging with each other on Zoom. But I did want to ask you about, because um, one of the hopes I had about lockdown, which I really didn't like or enjoy at all, but one of the hopes I had is that, that it might bring people back to their senses politically. I did think early on in March 2020, April 2020, that this crisis, the fact that we're closing down society, the economic questions that will raise in terms of the impact it will have on, on people's living standards, I thought that would push to one side the culture war issues, the trans stuff, all the other issues that have dominated political life. But it seems to have had the opposite effect. Those things seem to have become more intense over time. And um, identity politics seems to be growing in stature in certain sections of society, particularly amongst the influential elites. And I did want to ask you whether you think the pyjama class, that section of society that I think is pretty problematic, do you think they will come out of the lockdown moment, the COVID period, strengthened? Or do you think over the longer term, their prospects for ruling society in the way that they do are going to be weakened by all the other events that will come out of this event? I think they're they're weakened. I mean, I feel hopeful when I look at um, the American political system. I think in a way, um, Republicans have gotten quite good at um, using identity politics, even, you know, they've understood there's a yen now for the in the Republican Party not to be just a white male party. And that's coming out in some weird ways, you know, like with George Santos, for example, or Herschel Walker. But it's also yeah. coming out in some really good mm -hmm. ways, like Chip Roy nominating 
um, Byron Donalds, the uh, a young black Republican to be the Speaker of the House. Um, it's just it's it, they're they're trying to give minorities a choice. And I think that that's coming along with a lot of movement in the Hispanic community towards Republicans, um, a renewed understanding of the inherent social conservatism of these of these communities and and so forth. So in that sense, they're really weakening the the Democrats hold on identity politics or the claim to representing dignity. And the Repu- the Democrats, meanwhile, have gone way they've way overshot. They've gone really far to this after they won all those culture wars. They sort of pulled, they pulled things way to the left um, beyond questions of dignity towards questions that really undermine dignity. Um, so I think that's becoming really clear. And um, you you now have, you know, really interesting Democrats speaking about the working class and um, trying to think more about what ki- what an economy would look like that worked for them. So, yeah, I think that there's, I think we're in the kind of, there's been a big woke clash and from, you know, I think yeah. even normie liberals. So, yeah, I feel very hopeful. Yeah. Okay, Bacha, my final question. I think this is another reason for people to be hopeful, which is that you're writing another book, (laughs) which is great news. Um, The working title is Unpromised Land, Searching for the American Dream in the Blue Collar Heartland, which is a great title. So I hope that's the one that sticks when it comes out in publication. Um, You don't have to give us an entire breakdown of what it's about, but what can we expect from this book? Why are you writing it? And what is the kind of core message you hope to get out through this book? It's the book that I was reaching for when I was talking about why I wrote my last book that did, and it didn't exist. I was like trying to be like, look, this will explain to you what I'm trying to tell you about why, for example, the working class doesn't want welfare. You know, they don't want your welfare. (laughs) The, The value of autonomy in the working class, who is the working class? And then a question I really had, which is, do they still have access to the American dream? I really wanted to know that. And you should never write a book where you know the answer because then it's like dreadfully boring. So um, it's going to be an ethnography of the working class. There are going to be some characters in it that we're going to spend some time with. And um, you'll really get a sense of like what their lives are like. I'm finding that the the, the working class is not just um, diverse racially and from a gender point of view, but um, even economically, there's sort of three tiers. There's a kind of middle class tier, a kind of floating tier, and then a downwardly mobile tier. And each class kind of needs Need, has different needs and um, they, they're very surprising. They were surprising to me. And um, I hope this is a book that everybody can like and not a book that no one will like, although I suspect with my track record, it'll, it'll be the latter. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it'll uh, hopefully you'll get a sense of like, you know, we talk a lot about the working class, but the working class themselves don't get to speak a lot in the public sphere. So I'm hoping to, to correct that. Well, we look forward to that and we hope we can have you back on to talk about it when it comes out. Thank you so much. Keep doing the amazing work you're doing. I I get so much strength from seeing it. I think a lot of people really do from your courage and, and everything you're doing. Bacha, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.